0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: There's only one Charles Barkley, one of the great basketball players of all time, one of the most luminescent personalities of our time. I caught up with Charles in New York a few days ago for my CNN TV show, and we talked about his cut on the state of basketball and the state of the world. Charles Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about, but I want to start by going backward Mm -hmm. and talking about Leeds, Alabama, where you grew up. Yeah. I read somewhere about your first day at the Leeds Elementary School and that there were some folks who weren't that happy that you were there because uh, you were one of the first black students to integrate this school.
2: Yeah, it was it was surreal because there was a, an older guy named Mr. Allen. I'll never forget Mr. Allen. He drove me and two other kids because there was an all-black school in my neighborhood, and this was the first time we started segregating, uh, uh, right? Doing segregation integration, and we got driven. There was no bus service. That's how early this was. So Mr. Allen drove me and two other kids to the school, and obviously we're kids, we don't understand all the stuff that's going on, Uh, but it taught me a lot about life that I actually use today, because there were more people who were nice to us than who weren't nice to us, and I try to use that. Anytime I'm involved with a conversation on race, you can't blanket any group. I mean, I'm very particular about that when I have that conversation. You don't blanket, like, uh, all Muslims are not terrorists. All Hispanics are not illegal immigrants. I always parse my words because I think it's important.
1: When, uh, so I read, I, I think I saw an interview years ago with your mom who said that uh, in those early days, maybe it was the first day, that your grandmother uh, took you uh, to school and passed some protesters you, mm-hmm. and uh, had a, a, a pistol in her purse just in case.
2: Well, my grandmother is a regular, she's the greatest person ever in my life, but she's a regular Johnny Mae uh, Edwards. John, Johnny Mae Edwards, and she she was a regular Annie Oakley. <laughs> uh, she was always packing heat. Um, my grandmother, she was tough. She didn't take any, any BS off anybody, but she always had her peace and was not afraid to
1: use it if push came to shove. She also was part of the—you she, she, you lived uh, right near Birmingham. Yes. She was involved in that civil rights movement in the, in the 50s and the 60s. My grandmother always, growing up, talked about
2: civil rights. She talked about Dr. Martin Luther King, Mecca Evers, even Malcolm X, e- even—it um, slips my mind right now—the uh, president of South Africa— um, well, Mandela Nelson Mandela yeah. excuse me I apologize America but she always <laughs> talked about always remember these people I mean she mm-hmm. always talked about it, even when I was uh when, especially when I was a little kid but even when I became a teenager and started becoming she's don't forget because uh, she's the reason that Muhammad Ali is the greatest sports influence in my life I mean she talked about these people all the time and, and I really appreciate her giving me that foundation
1: she worked in a meat packing plant. Uh, my mom was
2: a maid, uh, and, and my grandmother worked in a meat packing factory. And they worked so hard, because, you know, uh, I've had two brothers who passed away. Uh, so it was four of us total uh, in the beginning. But they worked so hard, because obviously you're not making a lot of money as a maid, and you're not making a lot of money in the meat factory. But we didn't feel like we were poor. We didn't know it, but we were. But we never felt like that. We always had meals. We always had good clothing. Uh, they they did an amazing job.
1: The uh, and were you 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 said you don't like to characterize, but race was you you were born in the year when the four little girls were in killed, yeah. killed in the church in Birmingham. So there had to be some sense of of of. Edge and-
2: there was always an edge, but you didn't know what it was until you started getting older. Mm-hmm. Like I say, you know the really sad thing about all this stuff is they bombed the church the year I was born. And now, in 2018, we still have race problems. So I just turned 55, so I can count. So for 55 years, we still had this the BS of racism going on. But to get back to your original question, well,
1: and well, it seems it goes right back to the beginning, doesn't it? I mean, that's sort of a story that courses through our history from it slavery It does, but on. but but we should we should
2: grow as people, we should grow as a country. Uh, you know, Muhammad Ali. Uh, I was reading up on him when he passed away, and he said, "If you're the same person at fifty you were at twenty, you wasted thirty years." And as a country and as a man, and everybody has to challenge themselves, if you're still hung up on race after 55 years, you need to take a good, hard look at yourself in the mirror.
1: And yet you, uh, you did an interview in 2005 with my Old boss uh, Barack Obama, just after he yes. just after he got elected to the mm-hmm. Senate, yeah. and you wrote some very and said some very nice things about him, and you said he he has the qualities of someone who could run for president of the United States, but you didn't believe that he could get elected president. Oh, of the United I, I, States. I, I
2: never thought in my life, lifetime we'd have a black president. Never uh, never thought that. Uh, but what I said was, he has the it factor. When you talk to him, you're like, oh, he is the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> he has charisma. He has personality. And I, I, I can't remember verbatim. I said, he's going to be something amazing uh, one day. I never thought he was going to be president. I, I never thought in my lifetime I'd see a black president. And I remember the night he got elected. I was sitting around with a bunch of uh, my friends and I got really emotional and tear eyed And they're like, dude, are you all right? He says, you guys don't understand. I'm from the South. And the notion that in my lifetime there's a black president, I, I, I'm in shock. I mean, I just couldn't believe it.
1: You know, it was interesting uh, when, when he was running for president uh, in the initial polling, uh, he wasn't doing as well as you would think with African-American voters. And when we looked into it, it was because there was this profound feeling that he couldn't do it. And then he won the Iowa caucuses in the state that was 98% white and his numbers among African Americans, because it it became a reality like, hey, he could actually do this thing. Let me ask you, do you think uh, that uh, Trump is kind of a reaction to Obama? No
2: question. No question to people. It's kind of like an overreaction. You know, there's always, when something bad happens in people's eyes, there's a reaction. The situation with President Trump is a total overreaction. And I I just feel bad because you see uh, anti-Semitism, racism. People feel emboldened to to do things and say things now.
1: Do you think he encourages that?
2: Yes, of course he does encourage it. Uh, The way he talks about Muslims, the way he talks about Hispanics. Uh, his, some of his interaction with blacks, uh, he definitely encourages it. And, and I feel bad because-
1: why, why do you think that? I mean, not, not why do you think he is, but why do you think he does it? Well, I think he panders to his base. Uh, and, and, and,
2: and also, I think another thing, I think the reaction was, I don't know if he won the presidency. I think they were voting against Ms. Clinton uh, more than anything. I really believe that. I think it was like they had two choices, and they're like, we don't like her. And this guy here is out of the norm. He wants to, quote, unquote, drain the swamp. I think that's why she lost the election. Uh, She lost it. He didn't win it. Uh, But his actions, the way he's treated minorities, has emboldened these other racists to be more bold, plain and simple.
1: You say these other racists, you, you, you feel that he's a racist? You know,
2: I'm I'm leery to call anybody racist, but some of the things he has said, because you know, it, if you really pay attention, which I pay attention to politics. I know you do. When a a, a, a a certain minority does something, he calls them out. But when that white kid shot up that church in Charleston, he didn't say, let's deport all whites. Uh, when that guy shot up a church down in Texas, he didn't say, let's get rid of all whites. Uh, the the kid, and I I hate to be morbid talking about these things, but he only signifies, he only talks about his immigration plan when it concerns minorities. But when some some whites have done some crazy things, he never says, hey, let's deport all these white people. Even you go back to Charlottesville, he didn't condemn them white supremacists.
1: Uh, I mean... What impact do you think that has on the country?
2: Well, it makes minorities feel like they aren't welcome. I actually I live in Arizona I think the Hispanics are amazing people I think they do a lot of work the blacks and whites don't want to do I think they work their behind off Uh, do they have some bad Hispanics of course they do do we have some bad Muslim of course we do but I believe the most majority of Muslim people in this country are amazing hardworking people but the president has done an awful job of trying to be inclusive uh, when you talk about building a wall, when you talk about deporting, like right now, we're spending all our time talking about Stormy Daniels, Russia. Uh, we got all these kids with DACA who we need, who are amazing people who we need to stay here. We never talk about them. I mean, I- I'm so disgusted with the whole thing, to be honest with you, because like uh, we got the worst public school system in the world. Uh, you know, people talk about economic opportunity. That's only economic opportunity if you're rich. That's like the tax bill they plan. I was joking on our TV show. Uh, they told me he talks I always talk about rich people going. It's trickle down economics. Uh, rich people ain't gonna trickle money down to the poor. Uh, I don't. I don't ever believe that. But we spend all our time talking about stuff that's irrelevant. I don't care what the president did in his life back then. I want to know how we are gonna fix DACA. Uh, how are we going to fix the public school system, and things like that.
1: You, you, I remember I was with you at the dedication of the Bill Russell yes. statue. Yeah. And I know he's sort of a mentor of yours. Bill Russell, uh, you know,
2: it's Muhammad Ali, Moses Malone, and Bill Russell. Those are the three most important basketball uh, uh, athletic figures in my life. Bill Russell called me one time, and you know Bill, uh, I, I don't even call him, Bill. I call him Mr. Russell. Everybody does. He says to me, he called me one day. He says, and I saw his number come up. He says, Charles Barkley. I said, Yes, sir, Mr. Russell. He said, Hey, you grew up in Alabama, right? I said, Yes, sir. He says, uh, Did you go to public school? I said, Yes, sir. He says, uh, Did the cops ever come to your neighborhood? I said, Yes, sir. He said, Okay. He said, Did any houses ever catch you on fire and the, the, the firemen come? He says, I said, Yes, sir. He says well, I don't want to see your black ass on TV complaining about your taxes anymore. (laughs) And I says, what do you mean? He says, so now you got money. You don't want to help other people out. But when you were poor, other people took care of you. And I says, you know what, Mr. Russell? You will never hear me complain about my taxes again. And it was a very interesting lesson for me because I do think rich people should pay more taxes. I'm blessed to be one of them, and we should pay more in taxes, but... I learned my lesson. I never complain about
1: taxes. The thing that was interesting about that was, you know, he was resistant to having a statue in Boston, in part because he dealt with racism yeah. there when he was mm-hmm. the greatest, maybe the great, certainly the greatest star of his time, maybe of all time. Uh, but uh, when he finally agreed to have a statue built, he asked that it be put outside the public library, not the arena. And when you spoke there, you talked about education, not about basketball. And you said you never talked to him about basketball. Is education the civil rights issue of our time? Education, the the problem is with black kids, uh,
2: they have brainwashed our kids to think they can only be great in uh, athletics and entertainment. And 99.9% of people have to go out and get a real job. I never talk to these kids about athletics. But like I say, they're not going to be Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Bill Russell. I said, first of all, if you are, bless you. But the truth of the matter is, most people in the world have to go out and get an education. And that goes on something else I talk about a lot. You know, the college system is not 100% great. But you know what? It's great to get a free education. Is everything perfect? You know, I hear these guys get on TV and talk about, "Well, we got to pay these players." I said, "Okay, how are you going to do it? Are you paying the basketball team? Are you paying the football team? Are you playing the swimming team? Are you playing the diving team? Are you paying the girls' teams?" It's not that simple, but I never want young black kids. I just tell not to. Tell, I don't want to hear anybody ever tell young black kids getting a free education is not a great
1: thing. Uh, I want. I, I when. Uh, just to go back to Obama for sure. a second, when he was a state senator, he would go to schools in his inner city district and he would say, you know, I go to the first grade and these kids were, had a light in their eye and they mm-hmm. said, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer. He says, then I, I get to the middle school, it was all gone. Mm-hmm. It was all gone. I know you've invested a lot of time and effort and, and, and your money yes. in, in this. Uh, what, do we, uh, what, do we, what do we do? Well, it's to complex. To save
2: these kids. It's complex because it's not simple. Because, number one, there's some personal responsibility. Uh, the breakup of the, uh, the black family is a big deal. We got to find a way that we should be able to fire teachers if they're not doing their job. Uh, I, I, so it's a lot of things that come into play. The notion that we can't fire teachers, that's a joke. Uh, but I say there is some personal responsibility uh, of the breakup of our families in the black community so it's not simple it's not a simple fix but we can never give up you know i speak to teachers quite a bit and they're like they get frustrated i said don't worry about the ones who fail worry about the ones who you help There are some amazing teachers i've had in my life uh miss 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 Plomp, uh miss turk miss hill miss robertson uh Ms. Stone, I've had some amazing teachers, Mr. Honeycutt, Mr. Copeland. uh, I've had some amazing teachers who have a a profound effect upon my life even today. And we spend so much time worrying about negativity instead of the positivity. I I don't do a lot of baggage. What I mean by baggage is I don't waste a lot of time on stuff that, like, I can't control. Uh, I don't. I'm going to look at the positive side.
1: Uh, I want to just go back to Trump for a second, Mm -hmm. Uh, because you're a student of people. Uh, One of the reasons that you are so uh, popular, Mm -hmm. beloved, is you say whatever the hell you want. Yes, sir. You don't don't edit yourself. I do not. And people say, that guy's authentic. I I may not agree with him, but I I believe
2: him. That's important to me. It's very important to me because, you know, know, David, people, these people watching— they're never going to see these guys I talk about in person more than likely. So I want them, I want to give them an honest account. Whether I like the guy or not, my job on television is to be honest because there's somebody in Montana, South Dakota, uh, L.A., Maine, Rhode Island, they're supposed
1: to believe what I say. And I take great pride in that. Uh, The reason I ask you this is Trump supporters say, He speaks his mind. He's authentic. One of the problems in the last election, that was the perception that Hillary was very edited, very Mm -hmm. political, and this guy was out there. You think that is uh, part of his appeal? I think it's part of—well, we kind of
2: all—I think there's some of his appeal. But I think nobody ever wants to look in the mirror and say, it's my fault. So every person who can't get a job says, yeah, he's right. That some Mexican is taking my job. I'm like, well, wait, wait. Did you want that job, number one? Or did you put yourself, did you work hard enough, educate yourself enough to get deserve that job? So it's easy to blame somebody else. That's factors in. And then you got the people who like, yeah, these Muslims are doing this, or then you got the thing like, well, uh, blacks are taking over. I'm like, first of all, I'm going to speak for all black people. We're not taking over. <laughs> I think he, he reached a demographic that won't look in the mirror and says, my life sucks because of me. Then uh, he came right after uh, President Obama, and there some people like, wow, we got a black president. They're not happy with that. And I think it was just a perfect storm. And... Listen, I never talk bad about the president. Uh, like, I'm going to be factual. I've never been more angry and disgusted at this situation that I am now. This turmoil every single day, uh, the tweeting, the hiring and firing. Like, dude, I'm blessed and you are too. Like, it really ain't going to have a big effect on our life. But I actually have Humanity. I want everybody to have a good life, I want everybody to have a good job, I want their kids to go to school, I want their kids to be safe, I want everybody to have economic opportunity. And we have spent the last year talking about Russia every single day. Now we got Stormy, now we got another girl,
1: and I'm sitting here saying, when are we actually gonna help the people? Well, you, you uh, you've done a series of shows on race, and you yes. travel around the country mm-hmm. talking uh, to people about race. And you hear that things are worse than they were before. And no, then that's, I, not, then right. I think that's not true. Then I think about your childhood yeah. in Alabama and what was going on back then. And, uh, you know, and I wonder if you've, yeah. I no, if first you've,
2: of all, anybody who said race relations aren't better, that's just idiotic. Uh, Racism does exist, always has, and all, unfortunately always will. But for people to say things aren't better, that's just, that's just ridiculous. I mean, uh, I can actually go in any restaurant I want to. I can go to the same bathroom and drink out of the same water fountain. That's stuff. But what I talk about is economic racism. When you don't give people economic opportunity. And I actually think that we spend too much time talking about race. America is divided by economics. Racism does exist. I'm not giving anybody a pass on that. But what America has become rich people against poor people. We put all the poor people in bad neighborhoods. We send them to bad schools. We don't give them economic opportunity. Racism, uh, One, uh, a friend of mine, uh, P.K. Subban, his dad, he plays for the, Na- the Nashville Predators. And I was with his dad one night. And we were talking his dad said one of the greatest things i've ever heard he says racism is a distraction from what the real problem is and i we sit down and had a great conversation and that's the point i want to make we spend so much time talking about racism we look over here and say like wait a minute somebody calling me a name and things like that that's just ignorant i ignore that but how do we balance the economic situation that to me it's the biggest problem we got in this country right now.
1: One of the things that uh, uh, I remember from that series was you went to Baltimore. Yes. Where the issue of policing is really
2: yeah. A- you know, David, I was bothered by that because some people in the black community say I support the cops, and I said, "You damn right, I support the cops. I'm always support the cops." That does not mean I want unarmed black men killed or police doing anything illegal. Two things can be correct. First of all, if it wasn't for the cops, we would be living in the wild, wild west. But some of my critics have had to try tried to say, just because I support the cops, I'm for unarmed black men getting killed and things like that. And that's really unfair. That's just really unfair. And I can deal with the criticism. Like I say... I'm always support the cops because we need them. That being said, I don't ever want any unarmed black men uh, getting killed or abused or anything like that.
1: There, You talk about arms, and there was this horrific sit, uh, uh, massacre in Florida that uh, sort of captivated the country. Uh, I come from Chicago. There are mm-hmm. communities that are killing fields yeah. every every day. And, you know, you, you talked earlier about your— uh, your, your grandmother yeah. being Annie Oakley, yeah. and you got famously pulled aside once and you had a gun in your car. I'm, a, I'm always carrying my gun. Are you, You're not armed now, are you? No, not okay. right now. I, but, I might have to edit some of my questions no, if you're no, armed. I, I, I believe, I believe
2: no, I believe in carrying a gun. I, I, uh, I, I do, and I'm never going to apologize for that. That being said, when it comes to guns, they should do a comprehensive background check on everybody, I can't even believe we're having this conversation. Like, if I walked into a Mercedes dealership and said, give me that Mercedes, they would say, okay, go ahead and take it. We'll worry about your credit later. They would do a background check and see if I can afford it. We should be able to buy guns, but we can click a button and find out every single thing you've done in your life. But they don't even do that. And that's ridiculous. They should be able to find out everything you ever did in any state, any country. And that's the least we could do. What about uh, these uh, semi-automatic weapons? Nobody needs that. There's no need for anybody to have a semi-automatic weapon.
1: Zero. uh, They're just to kill people. So most of America agrees on the things that you're saying. Certainly the background checks, majority on Mm -hmm. the never changes. Why? Well, because, uh, you know... These
2: last couple of presidential elections, it cost a billion dollars for a job to pay $400,000. It's so much money involved in this stuff. It's crazy. The notion that you have to raise a billion dollars for a job to pay $400,000, that's, that doesn't sound crazy to everybody that listened to this interview. It's something wrong. But there's so much money Coming from all these special interest groups, uh, politics are so corrupt now. I don't even know if you can put the toothpaste back in the tube. So on the gun issue, you think oh, the it's, gun the, issue, it's the, 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 the everybody's NRA getting money? The NRA, uh, but there's other uh, issues, uh, but the NRA is so powerful. Uh,
1: but I don't even understand. Like, even what do you if- think about these kids that uh, down in Florida? You think they're having an impact, these high school kids? At Parkland?
2: I think, uh, let me give you an example. How, how foolish, silly silly all this stuff is. So Delta had, I think, 13 people with the NRA, they want to give their discount to the fly. Yes. And a, a Republican politician passed a bill to penalize Delta, Georgia, yeah. like $65 million. Like, this stuff is so... Ridiculous! The notion that they, Delta was trying to do the right thing, but they lost $65 million in the process because the Republican said, no, you don't penalize the NRA like that. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, that that drives me crazy. You know, and it's uh, something else I want to mention, too, is why it's on my mind. When we were talking about all this stuff with President. Uh, yes. We, you know, we talk, I, I want to make sure we don't forget about DACA. Uh our public schools. I don't want to forget about those poor people in Puerto Rico either. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was watching the news last night and they're still six months out. They don't have power. We don't even mention them anymore. We're wasting all our time on Russia and Stormy Daniels. It's ridiculous. You don't think the Russia thing's an issue? I do not. I think it's probably true that they got, but I'm pretty sure in area election, state, local, national, somebody can get some dirt on somebody if they wanted to like if you put out fillers uh, you can get dirt like I'm uh, am I sure no I'm not sure but it's probably true uh-huh. but what good is that it a concern though what, what good what, what's the what's the end game is my question uh, is he going to get uh, is he gonna lose his job is he gonna be impeached like what's? see my thing is what's the end game First of all, I don't. I want to make it clear. I don't want Russia interfering in our election, and I'm pretty sure they did. But my question is, what is the end game? Uh, mm-hmm. That's what bothers me. Like I don't think I don't think he's going to lose his job, uh, but and we're just wasting. So you think
1: it's a distraction?
2: It's definitely a distraction. We uh, that's because like I say we don't talk about DACA, we don't talk about Puerto Rico, we don't talk about stuff we need to be talking about.
1: You got involved in the uh, Alabama Senate race. Yes. Uh, between Doug Jones and Roy Moore, uh, why'd you decide to go down and get involved in there? I was embarrassed for my state.
2: You know, David, when I went down there, every news organization in the country was there. And why were they there? To see if we were stupid enough to vote for Roy Moore. They, They don't care about no Alabama Senate election. They were there to see the train wreck. And as a proud Alabamian, I was disgusted and embarrassed that we were looking like idiots to the, to, to the world. Doug Jones is a good man. I don't know Roy Moore. I'm not a Roy Moore fan. But I was just embarrassed that my state was looking like idiots uh, around the country.
1: Well, after that, I remember on election night, you said uh, that Democrats had taken black voters for granted. Forever. I voted Democrat
2: for 55 straight years. And first of all, I want to make clear, I don't think the Republicans are better. But I think we, as black people, have not held Democrats accountable for taking our votes for all these years. Uh, I look in my hometown, I, I don't think, other than the fact that I was able to duck a basketball, I don't see a lot of change in my neighborhood or my state. Uh, but I think, I have an issue with both parties, but I think speaking as a Democrat, we we have not held the Democrats accountable. Like like I say, everybody in my life has voted Democrat our entire life. And now we're starting like, well, how much has it really helped us? Like I say, we know the Republicans aren't better. Let's get that out the way. But if if you're gonna have us vote for you, you, we got to start holding them accountable. Our neighborhoods are not better. Our schools are not better. Uh, Crime is not better. Uh, So we got to start holding these politicians accountable.
1: You, uh, uh, while that race was going on in Alabama, uh, Trump uh, launched this attack on Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about him creating these. uh, Distractions.
2: Yeah. Okay. So
1: let me get back to the Alabama thing.
2: A couple things bothered me about the Alabama thing also. I didn't want to get... When he brought in Steve Bannon, to me, that was the last straw. Why is that? Uh, because he's a, a white separatist. We can't have a politician running for office that we know is a white separatist. We can't have that. I mean, you bring, he brings in Steve Bannon. And I'm like, wait, you can't bring in a white separatist and run for a a state office. You're supposed to represent everybody. I think what Colin Kaepernick did was amazing. Uh, Now he's gonna pay, he's blackballed, he's probably never gonna play in the NFL again. Uh, The president hijacked the entire conversation because talking about the flag, I don't think Colin had any disrespect for the flag. Uh, It's a really awful situation.
1: You know, he was raising the issue you were speaking about before, which is uh, about police, police abuse of power. Yes.
2: And the president hijacked the entire scenario. And, you know, you talk about Alabama again. That's when he made the famous speech about when, he's talking about when he went down and campaigned for Roy Moore in that area. He said, like, wouldn't it be great if one of those guys Neil, and one of the owners just came down and told me to get the hell off my Take team? Son of a bitch off yeah, the floor. Yeah, he See, he did that in Alabama because he knew that was his 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 red meat. You know, he he he, he placed his
1: audience very well. I mean, he plays his audience very well. You uh you've you've talked before about athletes not being role models. You know, we always want to, yeah. to put athletes on a mm-hmm. pedestal and invest in them all the qualities that yeah. we hope they have should athletes be uh, political models I mean
2: well I think it's up to each individual well see people first of all that, that, that role model commercial is probably the best thing I've ever did in my life because it's, it's sparked a nationwide debate and what I was trying to do was get a conversation going because David I noticed I think I made that commercial in 88 maybe uh, but I noticed something Every black kid was thinking they're gonna play pro sports. And it was driving me crazy because, you know, we still have segregated schools in this country. So I'm visiting all these schools and I noticed this terrible trend. So I'm going to this white school and I says, hey, well, what do you guys wanna do? I said, well, how many of you guys wanna play pro sports? There was only like 5 to 7% raised their hands. Like, what do you wanna do? I wanna be a doctor. I wanna be a lawyer. I wanna be an engineer. I'm like, so then I go to a, a black school. I said, well, how many of y'all want to play sports? They're like, me, 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 me. Like 95% of them. And I was like, okay, this is a a thing. So, okay. So then the group I got with me, it's like, dude, it's the same at every school. And that's when I went to Nike. I said, hey, this is going to be controversial, but I want to do it. And I said, I can take the heat, but it will start a dialogue. And even to this day, I have people come up to me and say, hey, great commercial. Even today, yeah, yeah. because I just wanted to start a dialogue, because I don't want our black kids thinking they can only play sports and be entertainers. We, could, we got a lot of black doctors, lawyers, engineers, teachers, firemen, policemen, but they're not on television. They only see uh, uh, Ezekiel Elliott, uh, guy, Odell Beckham, uh, LeBron, uh, I mean, they don't see doctors and law. They only see the guys who make a, a crap load of money. God bless all these guys, I might add. But they don't see black doctors and lawyers and engineers on television enough. Uh,
1: speaking of LeBron, you know, Laura Ingram uh, on over on <laughs> yeah. Fox uh, was upset when he uh, spoke out against the president, and she yeah. said, "Shut up and just and, dribble and just dribble." And this goes to sort of, uh, well, LeBron's a. Uh,
2: I think LeBron James' story, and I've said this before, not just, I think it's the greatest sports story ever. What I mean by that, for an 18-year-old kid who's the only one I've ever seen was good enough out of high school, not even Kobe, Kevin Garnett, Tracy McGrady, none of those guys were ready when they got to the NBA. But for an 18-year-old kid to come to the NBA, live up to the hype, and the conversation is... in Some of the great... It arguably one of the five to 10 greatest players ever, never came close to getting in trouble, ever, and a great guy. Um, It's one of the greatest stories ever. I agree. But if you go back and look at history, Muhammad Ali, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, athletes have always spoken out. Always. We've never not spoken out, actually. And now, with social media, and, and the platform these guys have. But I want to say this one thing, though. I think a guy has to be very careful, very thoughtful with his response. You can't, I do no social media because I don't feel the need to talk to everybody. Because you have to realize you can't make everybody happy. Some people dislike you for, for, just because you're successful. But you can't be drunk. You can't be mad. You can't be coming off a bad game. You have to really be careful if you're going to tweet, uh, do Facebook or anything like that because it's, it's out there. And it doesn't See, the thing people don't understand is it doesn't matter what they say to you. If you're famous and you say something to them, that's when it goes – I think the term is viral. Yes. Yeah. So, like, that's what you have to really be careful of.
1: You uh, you talked earlier about uh, the – you started talking about the NCAA yeah. and the, the, should players be paid and so on. There, there is this sense that at a lot of schools, these kids are tremendous assets to the school. They make a lot of money. But in, uh, the question is, how much do the schools invest in them as students and not as athletes? You saw the thing in North Carolina mm-hmm. a few years ago where they were yeah. creating phony True. courses and yeah. so on. So it is a great opportunity for these young kids to get scholarships. Yeah. But if, if, this, if the school's treat them as professional athletes rather than as students. And most of them aren't going to be in the NBA, mm-hmm. as you say. Uh, isn't the NCAA letting them down? Uh, the
2: NBA, uh, NCAA has not done a great job uh, going back to my time. They have not done Because a, a lot of times they just give you class to keep you eligible. So that's got to be fixed. But like I say, the notion that you can get a free education is a big deal. Uh, no, You know, everybody say, well, we should pay these kids, but they don't give you a solid plan because you can't just pay the basketball and the football team. You got you to worry about Title IX. And first of all, <laughs> a lot of these schools got swimming, diving, equestrian, sports I never even pay attention to. Uh, but you're going to have to pay everybody. You just can't pay the football and the basketball team. And another question is, and people say, well, won't you let a guy sell his likeness? I says, well, that's great if you're the quarterback or the running back. <laughs> nobody's buying a big, ugly defensive lineman and offensive <laughs> lineman's jersey. And let me tell you something. If I'm in the locker room, and I'm Charles Barkley, and I look at the stands, and there's 10,000 Charles Barkley jerseys, and I'm making an extra half a million a year, and I'm looking around the locker room, and these guys look at me like, oh, you're the only one working out here? Yeah, It's going to bring a ton of resentment from the other players, like, if I'm the offensive lineman and I'm opening holes for the running back and blocking for the quarterback, and they're making an extra meal a year with their jerseys and I'm not getting a dime, I'm not going to be happy with that. Yeah. I mean, so, like I say, I want to do as much as, uh, for these players as possible. Uh, but like I say, I always get offended when people act, act like the notion, like, because everybody I know tell me they got debt from, from college tuition.
1: Yeah, but if you've got a kid who is a great athlete, and is a big draw for your team, and is the guy who everybody wants, mm-hmm. whose jerseys they can sell. Uh, are you going to uh, tell him, you know what, you can't play because you're not spending enough time in the classroom? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, that is the that's the question I have about big time college sports. It, 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 but see, that's that's it, that's a great question, but
2: it's not a simple answer. Uh, it's it, it, like. It, there's it's thing is, it's so many moving parts. Like some like the one and done now. These kids, but the, the dirtiest secret with one and done is these, these kids go to class for the first... What, one year. And no, they, not even one year. Like for the first semester or the first quarter, and that'll get them through basketball season. And then they don't go to class the second half of the season. That's one of the dirtiest secrets that people never talk about. But we've been talking about it for like the X amount of years. Like you go to class for like the first semester or the first quarter, by the time your grades come out the second time, the season's over. And, I mean, that's a big problem. And like I say, uh,
1: I don't know how to solve
2: that problem.
1: Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, you're such a champion of education and uh and a lot of these kids, as you say, they're not going anywhere. 99% of them. Right. Yeah. So if they don't take that seriously and the school doesn't take it seriously for them. The school, we got to start
2: making the schools pay for not graduating players. Um, that to me, when I first started doing March Madness, that was the number one thing I said. Because I was happy just doing the NBA. And they said, will you do March Madness? I said, no, I'm not that big of a deal. Uh, if I don't do it, they're like, we want you to do it. And it turned into a blessing. It's been amazing. But I said, this is what I want in return. I need you to start graduating more of these players. And I think they're, they're getting better. They're not where I want them to be. Any player who doesn't make it, uh, who, who wants to graduate, they should keep them on scholarship as long as possible.
1: Let me ask you about your own amazing career because not to, now that I know that you're unarmed right now, let me just say <laughs> you were an a undersized, uh, plump yeah. uh, kid uh, and you became one of the greatest athletes of all time. But back in Leeds, you told your mom, I'm going to be an NBA player just like these kids yeah, you see today yeah. and I'm going to get you anything that you want and you did. What, what made you different?
2: Well, well, I grew from 5'10 to 6'5". That's the main thing. You know, I grew from 5'10 to 6'5 in one year. But You didn't I, make the team in your I didn't. I didn't your, make the team. I wasn't that good. Sophomore uh, year. I, I did not. But when I grew from 5'10 to 6'5, the best thing that happened to me was being 5'10 because I played point guard. The best ability I had was to be able to dribble the ball. So even though everybody I played against was bigger, I always had an advantage because they, they didn't want to get out on the floor. Because big guys always want to stay around the basket. So my ability to dribble was the best thing ever happened to me. But you also worked at it. You, oh, no, I worked there hard. there shooting day and night. Because I wanted jumping to. Jumping over a
1: four-foot wall, is that be, right?
2: It, I did, because I wanted to get my legs as strong as possible. But in the beginning, all I did was, it was really ironic, it, it's come full turn. I just wanted to go to college for free. Because like I say, you know, my mom was a maid, uh, uh, and my grandma was in a meat packing factory. I just wanted to get a free scholarship. And your dad left. My dad you... left uh way long time ago. But I just wanted to go to college for free because I knew that my mother and grandmother could not afford it and I didn't want to borrow a lot of money. And it worked out great for me. And even up until my sophomore year in college, I'm not even thinking about the NBA. Uh I, I'm not I'm like I'm like I'm a six-five power forward, but I'm gonna get a Quality education. And then I had a unique skill set being able to get rebound. A rebound of my, was my thing. And, and my coach said, Hey, if you get 10 rebounds, uh, he, he showed round me the, mound round mound of yeah, rebounds. He showed me the stats <laughs> one day. He says, How many guys in the NBA you think are averaging double digit rebounds? I said, 30, 40. He says, Nope, there's about 10. He says, Can you get me 10 rebounds a night? I said I can get you 10 rebounds a night in my sleep. <laughs> and he said, if "You get me 10 rebounds a night, you're playing in the NBA for du- for 10 years or more." I said, "Coach, you got me." You know, like Jerry Maguire, like was, you had me at hello. When <laughs> he said, he said, "Hey, if you get double digit rebounds a night, you'll be in the NBA for a dozen years." And the rest was history.
1: Yeah. So how does a 6-5 guy get double digit rebounds? You, yeah, you a got night? to go get it. I was saying, I used to say you to my... You with a kind of, it was a, a fury.
2: I had to. Because everybody I played, I think, somebody showed me a stat. First of all, uh, I'm the only player in the history of basketball who never played against somebody who was shorter than them, taller than them. <laughs> I mean, I always was short. I never played against anybody in my entire life because I played center in high school. But I, my entire college and pro career, I never played against anybody who was shorter than me. I was always the shortest guy Uh, out there in the the post. And I had to play with him. But it got me in trouble, though. Uh, It got me in trouble because, you know, I was mad at the world for a long time. I was mad at my dad. Uh, Another secret. So my junior year, we lost. I got hurt. We lost for the state championship my junior year. My senior year, we were like undefeated. And then I got hurt again and we lost again. I was totally depressed. So I quit school for like a week. I was just I was just fried. I I, I couldn't believe we had lost. So I got it back together, but I ended up flunking Spanish. So I didn't get to graduate. So uh in my hometown, we graduated outside on the football field. So my dad actually came to town, and he ripped me a new one. And I was already in a fog. I was out of it. So I went to the, the the baseball stadium that was next door. And I stood on the top rung r- 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 and cried for two hours.
1: And watched the graduation. Watch the graduation. That you weren't involved in. And
2: I, and I said, this is the last time in my life I'm going to let anybody control my destiny. Hmm. And so... My first X amount of years in NBA, I was mad at my dad. I was mad at Ms. Gomez for flunking me in Spanish. <laughs> and I played uh, with such a, uh, I was totally out of control. Fury. Con- I, I, was, I was out of control, yeah. probably. And then I had the spit incident uh, in New Jersey. Spitting on a fan. Yeah, with, with Lauren. And, and that changed my whole life. A negative thing changed my whole life. Because I had to sit down and say, Hell, man, you got to let this thing with your dad go. I don't know why you're mad at Ms. Gomez. It was your fault for flunking Spanish. First of all, it was your fault for taking Spanish. (laughs) 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 And I said, You need to take a step back and just want to be great at basketball for yourself. And I thought about it. I mean, it took me, and I was like, Man, I mean, it was a very, it was, it, was, it was my moment of truth. It was my moment of truth. And they said, you can play basketball to try to stick it to everybody else. You know, all those kids who laughed at you in high school when you didn't graduate and they graduated, you need to let that go. And I sit down and, and I cried. I said, I it, was, it was emotional. I said, okay, from this, for, this day forward, I'm just gonna wanna be a great player for myself. And that was a turning point in my life that night in New Jersey because at that point I was just trying to, I was just trying to, I said, I want to be great to stick it to these people, these people, these people. And I had to take a look in the mirror, and
1: that was the turning point. Let me ask you about being great. Um, what is it, everybody who in professional sports, in the NBA, there, there are a bunch of elite athletes, mm-hmm. but then there are the sort of, the Charles Mm Barkleys, the Michael Jordans, who I watched for 13 years. What is it that separates those people who are physically gifted? Uh, It seems like there's a mental component uh, to it. Like I never thought when Michael was on the court that the Bulls would ever
2: lose.
1: You always thought he'd figure out a way. He'd will the thing.
2: Well, there's a, a tremendous amount of pressure is what it is, because it, it's a double edged sword. Like I'm not on Michael Jordan's level. I'm a step below. I'm man enough to admit that.
1: Is anybody on his level?
2: No. Uh, Kobe's a step below. LeBron. LeBron's a step below. But Michael's here. Yes. But you get all the credit and you get all the blame. So that is a mental pressure. First of all, very few people can handle it, because even even today this thing is like well, Charles Barker never won a championship i i got to live with that but i don't go crazy i wasn't playing by myself <laughs> but the point about being great it's kind of a double edged sword you get all the credit but you also get all the blame and that's the, the that's that thing that drives you i mean that that's the thing that drove michael It drives, drives everybody because nobody knows uh like right now, let's take another a great player, uh, like James Harden's a great player, uh, Chris Paul's a great player. At now, if, if if they don't win a championship, it's gonna be like they're not gonna say they're gonna say, "Well, James Harden, Chris Paul didn't win a championship." I'm like, you know, they playing with like ten other guys. Yeah. But there's
1: uh, a. But you that, can't think about that when you're like, Jordan used to say that for him, when the game was on the line, it would slow down. He oh, no, the game's it.
2: always slow down when you're a great player. Uh, it's, it's, it, you, you, it's, weird, it's weird. One of my coaches asked me something one time. One of my favorite coaches, a guy named Jimmy Lanham. Yeah. He pulls me aside one day. He said, can I ask you a basketball course? I said, sure. Coach, you not ask me anything. He says, it's a game in slow motion to you. And I said, let me think about that. And I said, Coach, it is... Like, when I, when I was at the peak of my superpowers, it's like I can see everybody moving slow and I'm moving faster. But, like, it's just happening in the game, so you're not thinking about it. Right. But when you go back in, in your little moments, you're like, man, I'm so much better than everybody else out here. Like, because there's only five guys on your level when you're great. Like, uh Magic. Bird, guys who were playing in my day. Magic, Bird, Michael, um, Carmelon was great. Patrick Ewing was great. But, like, unless I'm playing against one of those guys, there's nobody else can touch me.
1: Yeah. So my my supposition is that the ability to take pressure and deal with it, because there are a lot of guys that say, I want the ball. Yeah. When the game's on the line, I don't want to take the last shot. And the guys who are great are the guys who say, you know, uh, I'll take care of this. Basketball players, we're like full-time relief
2: pitchers. Because I know every night, like a great closer, like he might blow the game, but he got to come back the next night. In basketball, we play eight or two games. And I know in 82 games it was a close game. Coach, said Charles, "What do you want the ball at?" And you have to have a very tough mind because uh, you have to be like, Dang, "I missed that shot last night," and I let, and, and you feel that pressure internally, but also you feel like you let the rest of the guys down. But you got to have that mentality. We got a game tomorrow, and you—that's uh, the, the mental part. Uh, it's the thing you have to master more than
1: anything. Uh, Jordan is a famously hyper-competitive guy. Yes. I heard that he was unhappy with you when you criticized his management mm-hmm. of the Charlotte franchise. Yeah.
2: You know, that's one of the great sorrows of my life, that we're not friends. Uh, so he, that ended your friendship? Yes. And I loved a guy like a brother. He was like a brother to me. Uh, and... That, that that hurt a lot number 1 but you know i think it's important in my job to be fair and honest because if you have a double standard cuz i have to i i say stuff about other people too yeah you can't say things about other general managers coaches and don't say it about and don't say it about your friends because the one thing about basketball is such a close knit community, and I've had players call me, I've had coaches call me, I've had general managers call me and say, "Why did you?" And I, and I said, "Listen, can I explain to you why I said it?" And when if they talked to me about it, I said, "Listen, I didn't say you were awful at your job. I said in this situation, you what you did was not right or wrong or blah blah blah." And. It, it works out most of the time. But that's one of the great sorrows of my life, losing a friend like
1: that. You mentioned him and the other great players you played with at the time. You guys were all on this dream team yeah. in 1992 at the Olympics. Is there, If you put a great group of athletes, of basketball players together today, the greatest players in the NBA, could they have beaten that team? Not even close uh, because
2: we didn't have any weaknesses. Like every guy on that team is in the Hall of Fame except Christian Leitner. We were too deep at every position. We were big, we were athletic. We had it all. I mean, uh, you know, our two centers were David Robinson and Patrick Ewing. Yeah. Great defenders, can run. I mean, we had Cl- uh, Michael and Magic Johnson. I mean, we had no weaknesses. And I tell people that was one of the coolest experiences of my life. And I'll tell you this, if you get a chance to go to the Olympics, go to the Olympics. The two greatest sporting events in the world, the Olympics and Saturday at the Final Four. There's nothing like it. Uh, I, I had never been to a Final Four until we started broadcasting that Final Four. And that Saturday at the Final Four is the coolest thing you're ever going to see. But the Olympics are better. The Olympics are the – and the television can only show you what's, number one, what they want to show, yes. But when you're at the Olympics and see how much pride these guys have in their country –
1: uh, it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. Mark Cuban, the owner of the, the Dallas uh, yes. Mavericks, he's talked about running for president. W- what do you think about that and the whole celebrity candidate thing? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think Mark, first of all, I'm biased. He's a great friend.
2: I think he'd be, uh, I think his heart's in the right place. I think he'd do a good job as president. Uh, I do, um because I know his heart's in the right place. But like I say, I'm biased because he's a good friend. You know, once the toothpaste is out the tube, we can, uh, we can ha- we're going to have more celebrity presidents uh, going forward. Is that good? It depends on the celebrity. <laughs> you know, I think when you look at President Trump, I was trying to explain his personalities to my friends like, I'm eager to hear this. Yeah. Okay, this is, this is just my personal opinion. I'm an amateur psychiatrist right now. So he goes to school. He's successful. Gets out of school. His family helps him start a business. He's 21, 22, somewhere in there. So he's got millions of dollars right out of the gate. Turns that into, quote, unquote, billions. He's 20-some years old. So he's the boss at 20s. At 20, we're we'll rounded down. He turns millions into billions. Now he's 70. He's never worked for another person a day in his life. He's always been the boss. Guarantee you, anybody who ever said something he didn't like, they were really fired. So you can see how he's developed his mentality. I'm always right. I don't have to listen to other people. I mean, think about it. He for, for 50 years, he's always been the king. He's never worked for another person in his life. Yeah. How many people actually can say that? Yeah. And now you're the president of the free world. And you can see why it's an egomaniac run amok.
1: Yeah. You. What about you? You know, you, you said a few years ago... Uh, uh, I really believe I was put on earth to do more than play basketball and stockpile money. I really want to help people improve their lives. And what's left uh, is for me to decide how best to do that. You and I have talked before mm-hmm. about politics yes. and the potential of... You, you've talked about running for governor of Alabama at at one mm-hmm. time. Is that something that you still consider? Not really, because
2: I'm disgusted in the political process. What I mean by that is... Uh, I don't want to go to work and argue with somebody every day. Uh, I'm a, what are you talking about? That's what you do on Inside the NBA. They, but they pay better. <laughs> uh, they pay better on that. Like, when I'm watching television every day, the Republicans and Democrat, uh, Democrats disagree on every subject. That's impossible. That's impossible. I could bring a guy in here from the Klu Klux Klan, and I'm guaranteed we could agree on something. We might have totally different lives and whatever, but we're not going to disagree on every single subject. And when I'm watching television every day, I'm like, come on, man. You can't disagree on every subject. Uh, And I don't want a job where I got built-in opposition every day. Hey, listen, let's just find common ground. Let's find a way to uh, fix the public school system. Let's help these kids from DACA. Let's fix Puerto Rico. Uh, let's fix infrastructure and things like that. Everybody might not get what they want. Let's just figure this thing out. But we ain't gonna fight every day on television, uh, and that's the reason I don't want to get involved in politics.
1: When, uh, when you're done, hopefully a long time from now, what do you want people to say about Charles Barkley? You know,
2: I'm not even worried about a long time, man. First of all, I think it's only sad when kids die. Listen, I'm 55. If I ain't done nothing good by now, it don't matter. I tell people that all the time, they look at me like, I said, I don't want to die, but I've had a 55 year good run. I've exceeded all my expectations. Trust me, when you're growing up in the projects of Leeds, Alabama, uh, your mom's a maid, your grandmother working at a meat packing factory, and you grew up to be Charles Barkley. I've been all over the world. I met the most amazing people. Uh, you, you, you and the president brought me to the White House a couple times. I was like, and it was so funny. Uh, there was a picture when I, when I was there one time. There's a picture, and I got it on my wall, a man, President Obama, standing in the Oval Office. And I didn't even know he had sent it out. I must have got 25 phone calls from people in my hometown. It's a very small hometown. They're like, we can't believe you or in the White House in the Oval Office with President Obama, and I and that that shook me because I was like because they kind of live a lot of them live through me, but for they they were so excited from somebody in their little small town um, was in the White House with President Obama and in the Oval Office. But to get back to your point, man, I, I think I'm a uh, I've done some stupid things in my life. I've done some great things in my life, and. When I die, I just hope people, because like you know, I always joke about this. This is the truth. It's a joke, but it's true. Like everybody has to lie at funerals and say, <laughs> "What a great guy!" And like, and, and let's be honest, there's some people who die. You're like, "I'm glad that I'm glad they're gone. I'm glad they're gone." <laughs> I just hope when I kill over, people say, "He he had a good run. Gonna miss him." And that's it. That's guaranteed, my friend. Look, thank you. Thank you for, thank being you for here. having me.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.